Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 128, August 28th to September 3rd, 1863. Last week, we went over the raid of Lawrence, Kansas in its entirety. Was it really a massacre, or was it a raid based against the arms-carrying population of a city that had done plenty of raiding themselves? Well, certainly violent, you can be the judge. The Union press certainly took the massacre side of the debate and ran with it, an immediate call for action following. This will result in Order Number 11, which will remove the citizens of several counties who are providing aid to the guerrillas. It is not going to end the irregular warfare, though. It should be pointed out. This week, we're going to cover the campaigns against Little Rock, spending a majority of our time in the natural state. We also need to talk about further campaigning against the Sioux at Whitestone Hill. Before we do all that, though, I just want to quickly plug the Patreon and what's going on there as we close out August and get into September. We're getting to the end of our three back-to-back-to-back movies, heavy hitters in terms of Civil War movies. We did Gettysburg, of course, in July. August, we did Glory. And now September coming here, we're going to be doing, with a good connection here to the Lawrence, Kansas raid, we're going to be doing Ride with the Devil. So we will talk about that movie as well. So if any of that sounds like it would interest you getting a little historical review and some synopsis of the movies, then by all means, there's a link to the Patreon in the show description. And the proceeds for that do go toward the general upkeep of the show. First, let's remind ourselves of the situation in this region of the war. When last we left off, there was a failed attempt to take Helena. This added to the laundry list of setbacks the Confederacy saw on July 4th. Remember, we had Gettysburg, Vicksburg, Morgan's Raid deteriorating, Tullahoma, and finally Helena, leading to things not being good for the rebels. Critically to our stories today, there was also the defeat by the rebel forces at Honey Springs and subsequently Cabin Creek before it, but we will get there shortly. At this point, there was now a clear road to finally take Little Rock, something if we recall was on the bucket list of General Curtis all the way back in 1862. Resources had been the main problem with the attempt, but now the Union Army has a lot of freed up men and supplies especially with Vicksburg finally having fallen. It was not too far of a steamboat ride down the Mississippi to Helena. Supply lanes were open on the river. No longer were there any Confederate strongholds that would impede the traffic. Frederick Steele, whom we have talked about before, was going to command the expedition. Steele was a veteran officer who had served on the frontier prior to the war. He actually had served all the way back at Wilson's Creek in the 11th U.S. Infantry. He would be joined by General John Davidson's cavalry, giving him some 15,000 men which to operate with. This influx in cavalry was brought on by a fear that Sterling Price was going to launch a new invasion into Missouri, which he's actually eventually going to do, moving into that state in 1864. Although, by that point... There's a lot of writing on the wall, and it's not going to be as successful. Now, Davidson was actually born in Fairfax County, Virginia. 
He had attended West Point and served on the frontier, being involved in battles against the Apache. During the war, he had already served in the Peninsula Campaign, so both officers were veteran leaders. Sterling Price would be the primary Confederate general defending Little Rock, as Theophilus Holmes had fallen ill. Holmes was not really an effectual or decisive commander, as we have seen, so this is not necessarily a bad thing for the Confederacy. But what was a disadvantage was the troop strength numbered only some 8,000. If Little Rock fell, the Confederate forces could fall back. But really, a goal, as I have seen thrown out there with some source material, was to establish a pro-Union government. If you recall, as we have talked before, there was a good amount of Union-leaning individuals in Arkansas. So, a new government being established, much like there had been in West Virginia, was seen as a plus for the Federals. Francis Pierpont was the Union governor of Virginia, which had made him a target for numerous Confederate raids. In fact, if you recall the Jones and Bowdoin raid before Chancellorsville, it was lucky for him that he was not home, and not so lucky for his library, which ended up getting torched. Mosby had carried out a raid attempting to nab Pierpont as well, but this was not successful. All of this is probably not a good selling point for whoever would be taking over, but it was going to be on the table nonetheless. Actually, the guy who does become the new governor is named Isaac Murphy, and he had voted against secession in the first place, so standing alone probably is not new to him. I'll hopefully get to go over some of those events, as they do not actually occur until 1864, so I'm a little bit ahead of myself. But, the point is, that as we roll into 1864, get to the end of 1863, and then look ahead to 1864 anyway, the goal of the Lincoln administration is going to start trying to establish these pro-union governments to obtain legitimacy and to offer the olive branch, so to speak, to all these individuals who have seceded. They can take the loyalty oath and come back into the fold, and then that's going to severely reduce the amount of Number one, Confederates out there, right? It's also going to establish bases so that emancipation can go into effect, right? So that's also going to undermine the Confederate war effort. But we can also throw it out there that the Confederacy is constantly looking for themselves to be listed as a legitimate nation, and it's hard to do that, especially when compared to these foreign powers and trying to get their support. It's hard to do that when you have pro-Union government on your home soil. So on the flip side, if Washington, say, had fallen to Robert E. Lee at any of the invasions that he does, then that gives the Confederacy some legitimacy. But having these governments established all over the place, obviously that's not going to go well toward what they're trying to accomplish for foreign intervention. Price formed some defensive positions a little north of Little Rock, but there was a flaw in his plan. You see, while the Arkansas River does flow through Little Rock, it could be forded in several places, making a defense difficult. The Confederacy did have some major helpers, one being the heat. We already briefly discussed the heat and how it was affecting campaigning in the deeper south. The dry weather, combined with lack of drinking water, is always going to be an issue for an invading army. Price also has John Marmaduke and Lucius Walker and their cavalry forces to slow down the advancing Yankees. He will replace James Fagan with Daniel Frost, Frost making another entry into our story, as you remember meeting him all the way back at the Camp Jackson Affair. 
Marmaduke and Walker would attempt to delay the oncoming Yankee troopers in late August. Their first attempt was the Battle of Brownsville. It would be here where Marmaduke and Walker would attempt to trap Davidson. Marmaduke would draw in the Federals while Walker would hit them in an ambush. Joe Shelby, with his Iron Brigade and one additional Confederate Brigade, would form a line of battle supported by some artillery. Davidson would push this line back as they outnumbered the Rebels. Walker would fail to spring the trap, but the second Southern Stand would hold off the blue-clad riders. Davidson would disengage, Marmaduke setting up at Bayou Meto, forming a defensive line at Reed's Bridge. Walker's lack of cooperation at Brownsville was adding on to the already sour feelings Marmaduke held against him. If you recall, there was already bad blood from the Battle of Helena. Walker had been accused by Marmaduke for not properly supporting him at that engagement either. This will soon boil over, which we will see next week. But things were not exactly all for naught for the Confederacy. I have seen it implied that had there been a better concentration of de defense at Bayou Meto, this would have been a larger problem for the Union Army. As it was, Price was content with leaving the infantry further south. Marmaduke and Walker would be left alone at Reed's Bridge. But there was still the problem of disease to deal with within the Union ranks. This is why the majority of the infantry had not moved forward with Davidson's mounted troops. Light skirmishing would mark the passage of the 26th, but the 27th would see a more vigorous renewal of the action. Despite being mostly cavalry, Davidson still did have the 32nd Iowa, which will combine with the 3rd Missouri and push the rebel defenders back from their advanced positions and across Reed's Bridge. The 3rd Missouri had been commanded by Colonel John Montgomery Glover. Glover was a lawyer prior to the outbreak of the war, being originally born in Harrodsburg, Kentucky. The 3rd had already seen action in several places during the war and will continue to serve throughout. Glover would actually serve in Congress in the 1870s for Missouri after the ending of the conflict. Now, as a result of the action, Reed's Bridge would actually be burned ahead of the advancing Yankees. Marmaduke would fend off attacks, but the action would devolve into artillery. The 1st Iowa would be involved in the action, having already seen some action prior, serving in the Prairie Grove campaign and amongst other activities, including anti-guerrilla fighting in Missouri. The artillery duel would conclude indecisively, with both sides withdrawing. Union casualties were around 46, mostly wounded, with probably less in terms of the Confederates being mostly on the defense. Both sides having withdrawn, this would prove to be inconclusive. Marmaduke would have his relationship deteriorate even further with Lucius Walker. Walker's presence had been requested by the cavalry commander, but Walker had neglected to show up or even respond to his fellow officer's query. Now, Maybe some of us have been involved in maybe work or office life where maybe somebody ignores an email or ignores something that a fellow coworker says, maybe even your boss. I don't know, it hopefully not you, but maybe somebody else and maybe HR has to get involved, there has to be some kind of mediation, right? But as we know from previous episodes in the 1860s, there is no HR. HR 
is going to be a pair of pistols. So we're going to actually see that next week. So we will switch to the other side of the state. Honey Springs, we have mentioned, was important for several reasons. Just as the supply lanes on the Mississippi River were open, the rebels had been driven deeper into Indian territory, meaning supply routes from Fort Scott into Fort Gibson were now open as well. Fort Gibson is not far from Fort Smith, meaning it was an advantageous time to attempt to strike that city. Remember that Van Buren, Arkansas had been raided and the city evacuated during the Prairie Grove campaign, but there had been no occupation by the Army of the Frontier. James Blunt was ready to strike another blow, and Fort Smith would, in fact, be the target. No longer was there going to be a combined rebel effort in the area. Cooper, if you recall, had scattered along with the Cherokee, Chickasaw, and Choctaw regiments, and they had all scattered into opposite directions, not east, toward Arkansas. William Cabell and his troops were the only things standing in the way of the federal advance. Cabell, if you remember, was a Virginia native, who had attended West Point. He served in Van Dorn's army during the Second Battle of Corinth. After the war, he would move to Texas and become the mayor of Dallas and U.S. Marshal. In 1863, he had recruited cavalry in Arkansas, but the troops he had under his command were of dubious quality. I may be sounding like a broken record, but conscription was not welcomed by many in the South so the fighting quality and capability is going to be in question as we move forward for many regiments. I think this is part of the solid logic in Confederate replacements moving into existing units. In the Union Army, new regiments would be recruited, which is why you will get numbers into the 100s for more populated states. That would also roughly give you an idea of when the unit came into action. But not so for the Rebels they would move their conscripts into veteran organizations, which is probably better than everyone being of one mind in their dissatisfaction and unwillingness to fight. You could maybe have the veterans hold the new recruits accountable, although they probably would be looking to desert or surrender to the enemy at the first opportunity. But alas, as is often the case, I digress. Cabell is going to realize that he is not going to be able to hold Fort Smith in the face of the advancing enemy. Blunt's forces would move into the city without any kind of resistance. Fort Smith would remain in the hands of the Federals for the remainder of the war. The Arkansas River would connect with Little Rock, so remember that when we talk about that for the conclusion of this smaller campaign next week. William Cloud would lead around 1,500 men in the pursuit of Cabell. Cloud, if you remember, we mentioned during the Battle of Prairie Grove. He had served as a volunteer in the war with Mexico and joined a Kansas regiment in the beginning of the war, having relocated there from Ohio. He wrote two books about the history of Mexico, drawing on his experience having been in country. Cabell would decide to try to ambush the pursuing enemy. A ridge called Devil's Backbone would be the place to spring said trap on September 1st. This ridge carried the Fort Smith Waldron Road, the latter being the destination for the Confederate forces. But remember that not all of his troops are going to be reliable in a fight. He would make contact with William Cloud's troops, though. Confederates would write, The enemy came dashing up, yelling and shouting, confident of success, their cavalry in advance, 
when they came within gunshot, Monroe's regiment opened fire on them and dismounted every man except two in the front companies. Union troops would also ride about the encounter. At 12 o'clock, we came to the rear guard in ambush, whose deadly fire cut down Captain Lines and 10 or 12 of his command. I found a line of dismounted cavalry and howitzers and steadily drove their rear from their position and up the mountainside to within one-fourth of a mile of their line of battle, skillfully formed upon the summit of Backbone Mountain of the Poto Range. I here brought my whole force into action, and for three hours the battle raged with variable violence. As mentioned in these quotes, Captain Lyons would be killed during the action. Cloud would dismount his cavalry to engage the enemy. In the meantime, Cabell's troopers would leave the battlefield without getting into the fight. Because of this, the two sides would trade shots and artillery for a time. Obviously, if there had been additional troops for Cabell, he would have been able to spring the trap, but these troops are the ones who were getting out of dodge. The artillery was ineffective, though, neither side gaining the advantage. Cabell and Cloud would both disengage, with both sides claiming victory. Cloud would return to Fort Smith, while Cabell would continue his retreat further south. Battle casualties were light, with the Federals listing 14 compared to 17 on the Confederate side. There would be a number of desertions, some of which would be changing to the side of the Union. For the time being, the Union garrison at Fort Smith was safe. It's another point that we have brought up in the past, and we're going to see this as we move forward. There are going to be an increased number of Union Southern regiments from states like Arkansas. Obviously not as many in terms of number as, say, East Tennessee. They actually contribute the most Southern-born troops to the Union cause, but you're going to see these regiments start to pop up. And really, if you think about it, you really don't get that from a Confederate perspective, it's not like you have an Illinois Confederate regiment, right? So this is also going to go towards just the general undermining of the Confederacy as a whole. The flip side of that is that you also have individuals who maybe they're just taking the oath of allegiance just to, to do it, right? We see that in Missouri. There are a lot of individuals who just don't want to uh, be executed as guerrillas, so they might join up, but they're not going to be the best combat troops for the Union either. So you do get some of that as well. It's not like everybody is gung-ho and it's not like they're all going to be 100% combat effective, but certainly some regiments were. Let's conclude the current campaigning we have been following against the Sioux with the battle or massacre of Whitestone Hill. There is some debate as to what the actual title of the event should be, as we shall soon see. Just to recap, though, we had Sibley with the contingent of men chasing the Sioux from Minnesota into what would become the states of North and South Dakota. We mentioned that the plan was for Sibley to hit from one side, and the other side would be hit by a contingent moving up the Missouri River commanded by Alfred Sully. Now we've already actually had Sully in our story, as he was formerly the colonel of the 1st Minnesota and fought on the peninsula. He would be removed from brigade command, though, as he failed to suppress a mutiny prior to the Battle of Chancellorsville, and was removed by John Gibbon from brigade command as a result. This is actually an interesting story, too, in of itself, is that John Gibbon is a strict disciplinarian. We've talked about him in our story before. We've heard his quotes from Gettysburg. He is very much the soldier, and there is a great example of how not all the troops are going to be satisfied with 
the campaigning and the Army of the Potomac. And this is a great example of these individuals who do mutiny, uh, I believe, in Stafford, Virginia, prior to moving out for the Chancellorsville campaign. And there were other troops whose enlistment periods were expiring and they didn't want to fight or they were close to expiring. And that's something else that's going to be plaguing the Union armies, especially as we close out 1863 and get into 1864. So definitely keep a tab on that. Sully's father was a famous painter, while he was also an accomplished watercolorist. In 1863, Sully was delayed and did not connect with Sibley before the Minnesota Column moved back into that state. But even though he was late to the ball, Sully would continue to operate against the Sioux, setting up a base of operations around present-day Bismarck, North Dakota. He had under his command the 6th Iowa Cavalry, 2nd Nebraska Cavalry, as well as a contingent of the 7th Iowa and some howitzers. A Matisse scout would lead the contingent to a large encampment of Sioux, with maybe 400 lodges. Not all of the command was present, however, so the major in charge did not know what to do when the Sioux offered the surrender of some of their chiefs. Rather than accept this offer, unconditional surrender of the entire camp was demanded. While it was possible that at least some of them had participated in the Dakota War, it was also probable that most of them were peaceful men, women, and children. We've talked about how there is also this disconnect in terms of culture. The troops here are going to see them as one entity. The Sioux is just one full entity, but we know it's a lot more complicated than that. And some of these chiefs that they're offering up, maybe they were actually guilty, and they were saying, hey, these guys are the ones that you want. But they're not seeing it as as ones or twos, but they are seeing it as if these individuals are guilty, then all of you must be guilty. So that's something that we see a lot, especially on the frontier with these wars against the tribes from the plains. Estimates are also going to vary for exactly how many of them were warriors. Most likely, there were less than a thousand. By the time Sully arrived on the field, he would observe the teepees being packed up for a hasty departure. Already, there were refugees streaming away to safety. To counter this, Sully would command his two cavalry regiments to fan out and try to corral the escapees and capture as many as possible. Already, some 150 had surrendered to the army. The Iowa soldiers dismounted and were driving the Sioux toward their Nebraska comrades. As a result, there was some friendly fire that did inflict some casualties. A charge by a battalion of cavalry would be repulsed by the warriors, with both regiments retiring to defensible positions. Darkness would fall, leaving the battle over. Sully would decide not to continue the pursuit, having suffered some casualties. He would continue his campaigns later in 1864. Casualties for the Sioux numbered maybe a couple hundred, but it's pointed out that many of these were possibly women and children. An interpreter of the expedition would write of the battle, IUP will not believe all that is said of Sully's successful expedition against the Sioux. I don't think he ought to brag of it at all, because it was what no decent man would have done. He pitched into their camp and just slaughtered them. Worse, a great deal, than what the Indians did in 1862. He killed very few men, and took no hostile ones prisoner. And now he returns saying that we need fear no one. 
for he has wiped out all hostile Indians from Dakota. If he had killed men instead of women and children, then it would have been a success. And the worst of it, they had no hostile intention, whatever. The Nebraska 2nd pitched into them without orders, while the Iowa 6 were shaking hands with them on one side. They even shot their own men. So as you can see from this first-hand account, that maybe there was some fudging on the part of those on the expedition, and as is often the case with these, there's sort of two sides to the story, and it's hard to really tell exactly what happened. But again, given that there was a very small amount of warriors present possibly, and how not all of them were hostile, certainly most of them were not, then we can get an idea of exactly what happened and how, unfortunately, it's probably a lot of non-combatants that are adding into those casualty figures. There were actually heavy casualties comparatively on the side of the U.S. troops with 22 dead and 38 wounded, which, if you can compare that to Sibley's battles, that is quite substantial compared to maybe the small numbers that he's experiencing. Was this all friendly fire, or was this a little bit more of a battle than maybe has been depicted? You know, it's, it's hard to tell, so you can be the judge. We're certainly going to revisit the area in the future. So we will call it a day there. We had a few engagements in Arkansas. Frederick Steele is knocking on the door at Little Rock after Brownsville and Bayou Meto, otherwise known as Reed's Bridge. Marmaduke has failed to stop the oncoming Yankees, although, to be fair to him, he didn't get too much in terms of support. Alfred Selly is going to campaign where Sibley has left off in the Dakotas. Next week, we're going to wrap up the campaign for Little Rock. We'll also head over to Texas and revisit Sabine Pass. Finally, we will give a little rundown of events in Charleston Harbor, since we have been there last. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, as well as Patreon and Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback is always welcome. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.